You are listening to the Lumen Christi Institute podcast. Now in its 20th year, the Lumen Christi Institute enriches academic communities at the University of Chicago and across the nation with the wisdom of the Catholic intellectual and spiritual tradition. Today's interview is with Professor Bernard McGinn, the Naomi Shenstone Donnelly Professor Emeritus of Historical Theology and the History of Christianity at the University of Chicago Divinity School, and a longtime friend of the Lumen Christi Institute. We sat down with Professor McGinn in the Gavin House Library to discuss his pioneering work in the history of mysticism and other aspects of his life and scholarship. Welcome to the Lumen Christi Institute podcast. My name is Michael Bradley. I'm the Institute's Communications and Events Coordinator. And this morning in the Gavin House Library, we're delighted to be joined by Professor Bernie McGinn, who since 2003 is the Naomi Shenstone Donnelly Professor Emeritus of Historical Theology and the History of Christianity in the Divinity School at the University of Chicago. Professor McGinn is also a member of Lumen Christie's Board of Advisors and has given many lectures and seminars for the Institute over the years. He has written extensively in the areas of the history of apocalyptic thought, and most recently, in the areas of spirituality and mysticism. Professor, welcome. Thank you, Michael. I'm very happy to be here. So why don't we begin by having you tell us about your present project. I was reading about it this morning. You're working on a projected seven-volume treatise, but I noticed that volume six is now entering its third iteration. Is this right? Three parts, yes. Three parts. Is vo- so, so volume seven may be wondering if he's ever going to see the light of day. Well, I hope so. And uh, I'd like to do it in one volume. My wife thinks it will probably take two, but we'll see when that comes, what, how long it will be. But I'm nearing the end of the project, which I started back in the 1980s. So it's been in gestation for a long while. So what is it about? Well, in the 1980s, as I was teaching at the Divinity School, we began to get more and more students in theology and history of Christianity and other areas who were interested in Christian mysticism and the history of Christian mysticism. Many of them began to write dissertations on topics related to mysticism. And at that time, then, it occurred to me that we really had no adequate scholarly tools for studying the whole history of Christian mysticism. There were Things of the study of spirituality, that, you know, multi-volume examples of that going back to the early part of the 20th century, but there were none that concentrated on the mystical aspect of spirituality. And so I decided in the absence of, you know, many good works on individuals, but there was no synoptic viewpoint, particularly from the theological perspective. So I decided I would try to do that, both for my own interests and for those of my students, and I originally planned the series to be three volumes. Uh, well, it's now I now have finished seven volumes since I finished the second part of volume six, and there's more to go. The first volume was published in 1991, and they've proceeded apace, you know, every couple of years or sometimes closer together. And the uh, project, I think, is uh, it still energizes me, and I must say it's been quite successful in terms of the sales uh, and the reception and the translation into many other languages, etc., so since your transition into emeritus status in 2003, you've clearly remained active as a scholar publishing, but I understand you've also been giving lots of talks, you're invited to give lectures, you're still kind of making the circuit, receiving fellowships. Is that right? You're still more or less living an active scholarly life? 
That's correct. I think very few academics actually ever retire. They just stop getting paid for what they like to do, which is to do research, writing. I lecture a good deal, as you mentioned, and I occasionally teach from time to time. Uh, I taught a course this spring at the Divinity School with Jean-Luc Marion on the City of God. I taught a course last spring on comparative mysticism with Michael Sells and Michael Fishbane. Uh, and I'm very fortunate in having the opportunity to continue to teach and lecture and basically, of course, to do my research and writing. To someone who's unfamiliar with mysticism, how would you describe mysticism? Is it a mode of theology? Is it a form of prayer? Is it both? If you were talking to somebody who was really a beginner in this field, what would be kind of your elevator pitch to explain what it is that you study? I would say mysticism is a way of life. And uh, in its very uh, simple definition, you could say that it's the search for deeper experience or consciousness of God in your life. And um, I, in my works, I've given a much more you know, lengthy, not so much definition as description, I call it that aspect of Christian life and belief which concerns the preparation for the consciousness of and the effect of the direct experience of God's presence in one's life. That's why I call the overall project the presence of God. But I think the best way to understand it is it's uh, based on the baptismal charism that's given to all, all believers that they are to search for God in their lives and to try to live out of that search. And the mystic tries to live that in, in the deepest possible way. And so what, all Christians are called to be mystics in a certain sense. What would you say is distinctive about Christian mysticism as opposed to mysticism or whatever the kind of parallel would be in other religious or sapiential traditions? Yeah, well, mysticism exists in many religious traditions, uh, as, as you noted. And uh, I found uh, in my own work very interesting and fruitful discussions with other mystical traditions, especially Judaism and to a lesser extent Islam. What's distinctive to Christian mysticism, of course, are the two bedrock foundational beliefs of Christians that Jesus Christ is God become man and that he has revealed to us that God is a trinity of persons. So that all Christian mysticism, I think, is essentially Christological and, uh, and Trinitarian. And of course, that's not true for the other comparable mystical traditions. Do you see mysticism being alive and well in the Western Christian world today? Is it something that up-and-coming students are preparing to study? I mean, you mentioned that when you were starting your project here at University of Chicago, it generated interest among students, not just corresponding to the interest that was already there. Is mysticism being communicated well enough in catechesis? Is it something that the church needs more to foster and to uh, encourage among the faithful? Well, I, I think it does. I th there's two ways to answer your question. The first way is that I think if you look over the, the, uh, the, the Christian world in the past 30 or 40 years, there's been a real turning to spirituality and to mysticism. I think that's quite obvious, and uh, you can see it in so many uh, different dimensions of, of uh, Christian life. Prayer groups, meditation groups, uh, publishing projects, discussion groups, teaching of mysticism, uh, and, and, and a general interest. So there is a growth from below, I think, that's very obvious. How far that growth is encouraged from above is, I think, a serious, uh, serious question. There actually is an important article on mysticism in the New Catholic, uh, in the New Catholic Catechism, um, but you don't hear it talked about very often. And uh, many priests, I think, when they're confronted with people who may be receiving you know, special mystical gifts, and this happens, don't know what to do with it. I've encountered a number of people in the course of my lecturing and uh, people who contact me by email and say they want to talk to somebody who will understand what they have been experiencing and they often don't 
get much response from the priest who will say, oh, well, that's, you know, that's out of my specialty, or, or, or who sometimes will say, well, you know, go see a psychiatrist. So I think we could do a better job. I think the church could do a better job in training its, its leaders, both clerical and lay leaders, uh, about this aspect of the Christian life. And that's not to say that there aren't many people out there who are, you know, who are really working in, in that vein, and I, I meet them as well, but I do think that more could be done. Do you think that there's a concern among the clergy that these gifts aren't something that can be, I don't want to say controlled because that's more pejorative than what I mean, but that these mystical gifts, the charisms through which they're expressed, the priests don't know what to make of them and with them precisely because they're thought to be something that can't be fit, so to speak, into a particular framework or is not really sure how it can be received in a manner that's controllable, although, again, that's not really the word yeah. I mean. But do you see what I'm saying? Yeah, I, I think that's partially true, uh, but it's also true, possibly a, uh, an effect of a kind of ignorance about what mysticism really is. Fifty years ago, you know, mysticism used to be seen as just a very elite phenomenon for a few very special people, a few rare birds, but it wasn't for the ordinary Christian. I think one of the things that has happened in the course of the last 50 years, and Karl Rahner was a great prophet of this, is the conception of everyday mysticism, that all Christians are, are called to a deeper experience of God, and this will have manifestations sometimes that are unusual and that are special gifts not given to everybody. But in many cases... This will just be a very deepening way of living a conscious life of God's presence. And in that sense, I think the everyday mysticism is something that one should encounter all over and that uh, every, everybody should be open to. I mean, Rahner's famous statement, the Christian of the future will either be a mystic or will not be a Christian at all, is, uh, is still worth meditating on and, uh, and thinking about. You mentioned these rare birds of, of mysticism. Have any of these rare birds been particular inspirations for you as patrons or patronesses of your own prayer, your own spiritual life? Well, I often get asked the question, who is your favorite mystic? <laughs> and uh, I have certainly uh, greater sympathy for certain figures, particularly for someone like Meister Eckhart, on whom I've uh, worked a good deal, uh, Bernard of Clairvaux, who's my own uh, patron, and some of the great women mystics like uh, Teresa Babila and uh, Marguerite Porette, uh, even, and, uh, and various others. So what I've tried to do in, in my history, however, is not uh, give scores or ranking. <laughs> that was often what happened in the past. You know, the Teresa of Avila and John of the Cross, these were the top mystics. And everybody else, you know, insofar as they came close to them, were good uh, or better or, or et cetera. I think that's a wrong way to talk about the mystical tradition. What we have to try to do is to understand each of these great figures and the movements that they represent kind of from within and what they, uh, what they contribute without ranking them. I use another expression or metaphor that I take from Hans Urs von Balthasar, who once said that truth is symphonic. And the truth of the mystical tradition is also symphonic. And it's a whole orchestra, different people playing different instruments with different sounds, but they're all necessary for the, the great symphony that is the Christian mystical uh, tradition. What instrument does Teresa of Lisieux play? <laughs> <laughs> she played the guitar in life. Did she realize <laughs> yeah, And she played the guitar and she sang her own song, so we'll give her the guitar. Oh, I never knew that. Yeah. <clears throat> uh, moving on to some other things you've been uh, working on or have worked on. You have the distinction of having written a, a kind of biography that most people would be unfamiliar with. I certainly was, namely a biography of a book. <laughs> Tell us about the biography of Aquinas' Summa Theologiae that you've published. 
Yes, well, there's an interesting story there. It's actually a UFC graduate who's an editor at Princeton. He got that idea to do a series of biographies of religious classics, small books meant for you know a general a general readership. And I thought it was a very good idea. Oh, I suppose about 20 of them have, have been done so far. But he approached me a few years ago and wanted me to do. He said, I'll leave it up to you, but I want you to write a book on some religious classic. And I thought, well, I could do a mystical classic very easily. I thought about doing Bernard of Clairvaux. And then I thought, you know, I've taught Thomas Aquinas my whole academic career. And I had written a few articles on Thomas Aquinas, but not not a great deal. And so I thought, I really would like to write a book on Thomas's Summa, which I've spent 40 years or more teaching and 50 or 60 years uh, studying. Uh, and of course, it's a, a little bit of a daunting project because it's a big book, and it's a big book about which huge books have been written in the thousands. So there's no way you can know all the uh, all the literature. So the the um, the challenge was to write a little book about a big book. And uh, I took some time off to read on some of the more current Thomistic literature because it's hard to keep pace with this increasing world of Thomist scholarship. But I did get to the point where I said, yeah, I'm going to give this a shot. And uh, so I did. And uh, I think I was basically pleased with the outcome. And the reviewers have been pretty much pleased as well. I always learn from my mistakes. And a few of them have been pointed out. But I'm happy with the book. And it's used, uh, I don't know how widely, but it sells relatively well. It's used primarily, of course, for classes, introductory classes to the Summa. And for the general reader who is interested in getting a picture of why the Summa was written, what its basic content is, and then how it's been received over the course of the many centuries since its production. That's indeed a tall task, let alone to fit into a relatively (laughs) slim volume. Let me take a brief detour and and talk about this. You mentioned that you've been studying Aquinas for 50 years, even 60 years. You were a doctoral student, or at least you were a, a graduate student in Rome, in the mid-60s, correct, at the Gregorian? 59 to 63. So that must have been an exciting time. I mean, Vatican II was underway as you were completing your doctoral studies. What was it like to be a a student in Rome as the council was happening? Well, it was... You would have had all these figures (laughs) visiting the city. I mean... It was was an unforgettable experience. First of all, uh, I love Rome and the city with all its history and its beauty. Uh, it was a wonderful time to be studying at the Gregorian University. We had many good professors, but the one who influenced me the most was Bernard Lonergan, the Canadian Jesuit, uh, who I think was one of the intellectually most formative figures in, in my life. And then, of course, the uh, the miracle of the council. No one had ever expected this when we were growing up in the 40s and 50s in the uh, in the Catholic world, but Pope John following the initiative of the Holy Spirit, put this council together, and it really made a dramatic change in the way in which most of us looked at the Catholic Church and its uh, uh, possibilities. So that experience of four years in Rome, 59 to 63, was indeed very formative for uh, for me, and I look back on it, as do my many classmates whom I see fairly often. Did you see figures like Balthazar or Rahner? or cardinals or their associates or the parity well, walking the streets between <laughs> sessions? Yeah, there were, there were cardinals and others. Uh, didn't see too many of the theologians. We did have Karl Rahner lecture at the Gregorian when I was a student there. I didn't understand a word he said at that stage, but I, I've tried to understand them a little bit later. Uh, You're part of a great cloud of witnesses who've had that yeah. experience, I think. 
Yes. So, uh, you know, it, it was very, very exciting. We saw a lot of the American uh, leaders of the council as well, but some of the others from other countries, uh, you know, the big public events and et cetera. Did Lonergan play a role in the council? Uh, Lonergan, I'm not sure Lonergan was a peritus. Karl Rahner was and Congar was and numerous other of the great theological figures of the mid-20th century. Uh, John Courtney Murray was a peritus, of course, as well. Um, so, and of course, the priests, uh, the theological advisors to bishops and cardinals, they pretty much operated under the radar, you know, in meetings with their, uh, with their respective bishops and giving them advice about uh, the different documents that had been drawn up, etc. Let's return to your, uh, your pension for co-authoring books. I, I think in 2003, you and your wife Patricia uh, published a co-authored book on major figures of Christian mysticism early Christian mystics. Now I'm given to understand that uh, your wife has played an important role uh, in your work as a scholar throughout the years. Tell us about this relationship uh, <laughs> where she's assisting you with your projects and you're working together on projects. Yes, well, she reads everything I write and tries to make it understandable and uh, often uh, often corrects all. She says I learned pretty quickly about these things. Uh, the book uh, uh, had an origin from, uh, from this pers- perspective. My publisher, Crossroad Herder, uh, had been after me for a number of years to maybe write a more simple book on the mystics that they could, uh, you know, sell to a, a, a trade audience, uh, that, rather different from the big, heavy uh, volumes of The Presence of God. And I kind of put that off <clears throat> because I was so involved with um, the basic research. But then it occurred to me, well, um, you know, I could use material from the first two volumes of The Presence of God, that's mysticism up to about 1200, I could use that uh, that material to uh, portray maybe a dozen mystics or so, and that my wife Pat, who, who had worked through those volumes so, so carefully, could uh, go through them and uh, take out material into uh, you know more accessible studies with brief biographies, etc., for these figures. So she would do the the kind of the trial run, the, the, the first work, and then we'd work on that material together and hone it into uh, a finished uh, product without footnotes uh, and without scholarly apparatus, etc. So that's exactly what we did. We picked the figures. She wrote up on the basis of those books. She wrote up a trial version. We went through them and expanded in some places or contracted in other places, and uh, eventually the product was... Uh, Early Christian uh, mystics. Uh, so she she drafted an early. Oh yeah, had an early go at drafting it. Oh no, so it's a it's it's very much a collaborative effort. And uh, when we tell people that we wrote a book together, we get a very interesting reaction. Oftentimes, that many people say, "Oh, you must have had a lot of fights," <laughs> <laughs> which is what they think of marriage to be, I suppose. And we actually didn't. We did have some disagreements. <laughs> Uh, two or three, where she said, well, we should do it that way, this way, and I said, no, we ought to do it that way. But it was really a very collaborative and enjoyable experience instead of some kind of battle royal over what was going to go in and not go in. Did you flip a coin to see whose first name would appear first on the, <laughs> on the dust, dust No, I don't, I, I don't think we did, but we have a nice picture of us on the back. You were here at the University of Chicago when Lumen Christie first got going yeah. in the 1997-1998 academic year. What were your thoughts then? Were you involved with the founding? Were you consulted or among the scholars who were consulted by our director Thomas and company? Thomas Levergood blames me for Lumen Christi, but that's only half true. In the middle 1990s, 
the Calvert House chaplain then, Willard J. Bush, came up with a plan to try to get Catholic studies at the university because Catholic studies, you know, is proliferating all over in different kinds of places. He consulted with various faculty, Catholic faculty, about this. And I said to him, I didn't think Catholic studies was a good idea. I didn't think it would be a good fit for the University of Chicago, and it would be probably hard to get the university to, uh, to agree to a, a program like that. And I said to him, you know, it would be much better if we had some kind of, I didn't use the word institute, but some kind of organization or some kind of group or body that were not directly connected with the university, but that could represent Catholicism here in the Hyde Park community with lectures and programs and, and all sorts of different things like that. And uh, I presume other people might have said the same to, uh, to Father J. Bush at that, uh, at that time, but that's why Thomas, who knows that story, has always said I had something at least to do with it. I was happy to encourage it. I was not a person who was, you know, like Paul Griffiths and, and, and Thomas and others who did the heavy lifting to actually get the project uh, started. But I was always happy to cooperate and to, you know, to give lectures or to attend lectures or whatever the case would be. And I, that association continues over the course of the years. So, and I think it's brought a great uh, positive presence of the Catholic tradition to uh, the university and to the Hyde Park uh, community. It has really flourished, I think, far beyond what um, I at least uh, thought of back there in the 1990s when I had that, that idea. And I think, um, I think it, it is continuing to flourish and expand, I, uh, I gather. I'm glad to hear you say that. And what do you think, uh, what do you think something like Lumen Christi might be poised to do 20 years out from now, based on your observations of higher education, Catholic higher education, well, one of the things, of course, is that Lumen Christi has been largely a Chicago phenomenon. Now, I know that Thomas is hosting events in other places. I actually gave a talk in uh, Columbia University in New York a couple of years ago under the Lumen Christi auspices, and I know they've had outreach to other areas. And so I'm just wondering if that work, it would be possible to expand that kind of work. There are, as you know, uh, uh, spin-offs or copycats uh, the St. Anselm uh, Institute at University of Virginia mm -hmm. that Robert, my friend Robert Wilkin founded is very much a copy of the Lumen Christi kind of model. And so that's fine. But I think that Lumen Christi itself maybe has that possibility. I mean, it will take energy, it will take leadership, it will take money. Uh, but that would be one place the future could, uh, uh, you know, could benefit from. And are you encouraged by the next generation of Catholic scholars do you interact much with doctoral students coming up through UChicago anymore? Do they contact you if they have questions about projects relating to mysticism? They must know that you're still domiciled, more or less, here at the university. Well, I, I, I talk to some, and the fact that I'm still teaching from uh, time to time, as I said last, um, last year I taught a course on comparative mysticism and uh, got to know some of the, we had Islamic uh, students and Jewish students and Christian students. I got to know several of the Christian students who are thinking of working on mysticism and have talked uh, with them, and I'm always happy to do that. I was at Notre Dame um, last fall at their Institute for Advanced Studies, and uh, two or three of the Notre Dame graduate students who are working on mysticism came to uh, talk to me about their projects. Uh, I was delighted. I recently was at a big mysticism conference at the University of Leuven. This is about two months ago. And both those Notre Dame students who talked to me delivered papers there on their, on their projects. So I'm happy to do that kind of work, even though I don't 
direct dissertations any longer. And you're encouraged by what you see in the the new generation of scholars who are taking up your work in mysticism and hopefully furthering it, advancing it, making use of it, building upon it. Very, very much so. I mean, particularly this uh, large conference they had at Leuven back there. It was in early May, as a matter of fact. They had uh, 50 papers, and the majority of them were given by younger scholars from the U.S., from the U.K., from, uh, from Europe, and of course a number of uh, American scholars are doing their PhDs at Leuven. And the quality of the papers was uh, very, very good on the whole, and it was extremely encouraging to see so many younger scholars uh, working in mysticism. Uh, I also was at a conference uh, more recently at Nijmegen in the Netherlands, uh, where they have the Titus Bronsma Institute for the Study of Spirituality. It was celebrating its 50th anniversary. Uh, Titus Bronsma was a Dutch Carmelite who was killed by the Nazis. For uh, you know, for his uh, public stance against them, and he's been beatified. Probably will be canonized. Great student of mysticism and spirituality. So this uh, uh, center, the Titus Bronsma Institute, uh, is one of the premier centers for the study of uh, of spirituality and uh, and mysticism. And there too, there were a number of younger scholars uh, working on uh, on projects there on uh, on things related to mysticism and spirituality. So this is really you know, growing exponentially, I think, in at least areas that I'm familiar with, although I've also seen it in Africa, South Africa, in Australia when I visited there several years ago, in India, I went to a mysticism conference at the Catholic University at Bangalore, Christ University. So this is a really a worldwide phenomenon, and uh, that's what I mean when I say the growth in study of mysticism is largely coming from the bottom upward and often through academic but also through non-academic venues. And I have no doubt that your your impressive volumes will be considered retrospectively if they're not already kind of the watershed in this uh, rejuvenation in the study of the mystics. Well, m- many people seem to think so, which is very nice. <laughs> Bernie McGinn, a legendary professor at the University of Chicago and a longtime friend and associate of Lumen Christi, member of our board of advisors. It's been a pleasure speaking with you this morning. Thanks for being with us. Thank you very much, Michael. Thank you for listening to the Lumen Christi Institute podcast. To access more resources, please visit our website and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. The music for this episode, Sequence for St. Hilarion, is recorded by the Lumen Christi Institute Artists-in-Residence, Scola Antiqua of Chicago, on their CD, West Meets East, Sacred Music from the Torino Codex.